Section 23 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manik Dubaisho, Portugal. Chapter 23 New Measures of Oppression and Public Protest Part 2 3. The Problem of Emigration and the Pogrom at Balta In Russia itself, a large number of emigration societies came into being about the same time, which had for their object the transfer of Russian Jews to the United States, the land of the free. The organizers of these societies evidently relied on some miraculous assistance from the outside, such as the Alliance Israelite of Paris and similar Jewish bodies in Europe and America. Under the immediate effect of Ignatiev's statement to Dr. Orshansky, in which the Russian minister referred to the Western frontier as the only escape for the Jews, the Russian Jewish press was flooded with reports from hundreds of cities, particularly in the south of Russia, telling of the formation of emigrant groups. Our poor classes have only one hope left to them, that of leaving the country. Emigration, America, are the slogans of our brethren. This phrase occurs at a time with stereotyped frequency in all the reports from the provinces. Many Russian Jewish intellectuals dreamed of establishing Jewish agricultural and farming colonies in the United States, where some batches of emigrants who had left during the year 1881 had already managed to settle on the land. A part of the Jewish youth was carried away by the idea of settling in Palestine and conducted a vigorous propaganda on behalf of this national idea among the refugees from the modern Egypt. There was urgent need of uniting these emigration societies scattered all over the pale of settlement and of establishing central emigration committees to regulate the movement which had gripped the people with elemental force. Unfortunately, there was no unity of purpose among the Jewish leaders in Russia. The intellectuals who stood nearer to the people, such as the well-known oculist Professor Mandelstam, who enjoyed great popularity in Kiev and others like him, as well as a section of the Jewish press, particularly the Basviet, insisted continually on the necessity of organizing the immigration movement which they regarded as the most important task confronting Russian Jewry at the time. The Jewish oligarchy in St. Petersburg, on the other hand, was afraid lest such an undertaking might expose it to the charge of disloyalty and of a lack of Russian patriotism. Others again, whose sentiments were voiced by the Russian Jewish periodical Voskot, and who were of more or radical turn of mind, looked upon the attempt to encourage a wholesale emigration of Jews 
as a concession to the government of Ignatiev and as an indirect abandonment of the struggle for emancipation in Russia itself. In the spring of 1882, the question of organizing the immigration movement had become so pressing that it was decided to convene a conference of provincial Jewish leaders in St. Petersburg to consider the problem. Before the delegates had time to arrive in the capital, the sky of South Russia was once more lit up by a terrible flare. Balta, a large Jewish center in Podolia, where a Jewish emigration society had had sprung into being shortly before the catastrophe, became the scene of a frightful pogrom. It was shortly before the Russian Passover, the high season of pogroms, when the Russian public was startled by a strange announcement published towards the end of March in the Imperial Messenger to the effect that from now on it would accurately report all cases of Jewish disorders in accordance with the official information received from the governors. The announcement clearly implied that the government knew beforehand the imminence of new pogroms. Even the conservative Moscow News commented on the injudicious statement of the official organ in emphatic and sarcastic terms. The imperial messenger is comforting the public by the announcement that it would in due time and at due length report all cases of excesses perpetrated upon the Jews. One might think that these are everyday occurrences forming part of the natural course of events which demand nothing else than timely communication to the public. Is there indeed no means to put a stop to this crime scandal? Events soon made it clear that there was no desire to put a stop to this scandal, as the Moscow paper politely termed the exploits of the Russian rubber bands. The local authorities of Balta were forewarned in time of the approaching pogroms. Beginning with the middle of March, the people in Balta and the surrounding country were discussing them openly. When the Jews of the town made their apprehensions known to the local police commissioner, they received from him an evasive reply. In view of the fact that the Jewish population of Balta was three times as large as the Christian, it would not have been difficult for the Jews to organize some sort of self-defense. But they knew that such an organization was strictly forbidden by the government, and realizing the consequences, they had to confine themselves to a secret agreement entered into by a few families to stand up for one another in the hour of distress. On the second day of the Russian Easter, corresponding to the seventh day of the Jewish festival on March 29, the program began surfacing by the severity of the mob and the criminal conduct of the authorities all the bacchanalia of 1881. A contemporary observer, basing his statements on the result of a special investigation, gives the following account of the events in Balta. At the beginning of the pogrom, the Jews got together and forced a band of rioters to draw back and seek shelter in the building of the fire department. But when the police and soldiers appeared on the scene, the rioters decided to leave their place of refuge. 
instead of driving off the disorderly band, the police and soldiers began to beat the Jews with their rifle butts and swords. This served as a signal to start the pogrom. At that moment, somebody sounded an alarm bell, and in response, the mob began to flock together. Fearing the numerical superiority of the Jews in that part of the town, the crowd passed across the bridge to the so-called Turkish side, where there were fewer Jews. The crowd was accompanied by the military commander, the police commissioner, and the burgomaster, and a part of the local battalion, which in fact, however, did not prevent the mob, while passing the cathedral street, from demolishing a Jewish store and breaking the windows in the house of another Jew, a member of the town council. After the mob had crossed over to the Turkish side, the authorities threw up military cordons on all the three bridges leading from that side to the rest of the town with the order not to allow any Jews to pass. Needless to say, the order was carried out. At the same time, the Christians of remaining sections of the town and of the village of Alexandrovka were allowed to pass unhindered. Thanks to these arrangements, the Turkish side was sacked in the course of three to four hours, so that by one o'clock in the morning, the rioters found nothing left to do. During the night, the police and military authorities arrested 24 rioters and a much larger number of Jews. The latter were arrested because they ventured to stay near their homes. The following morning, the Christians were released and allowed to swell the ranks of the pillaging mob while the Jews were kept in jail until the following day and freed only when the governor arrived. On the following day, March 30th, at 4 o'clock in the morning, a large number of peasants, amounting to about 5,000 and armed with clubs, began to arrive in town, having been summoned by the Ispravnik from the adjacent villages. The arrival of the peasants were welcomed by the Jews, who thought that they had been called to come to their aid. But they soon found out their mistake, for the peasants declared that they had come to beat and plunder the Jews. Simultaneously with the arrival of the peasants, large numbers from among the local mob began to assemble around the cathedral, and eight o'clock in the morning, signals were given to renew the pogrom. First, this was prevented. The officers of the local battalion who patrolled the city ordered the soldiers to surround the mob and hold it off for about an hour, during which time the Greek Orthodox bishop Razionovsky admonished the rioters and tried to make them understand that such doings were contrary to the laws of the church and the state. But when the police commissioner, the military chief, and Ispravnik arrived before the cathedral, the military cordon was withdrawn, and the crowd, now let loose, threw itself upon a nearby liquor store, and after demolishing it and filling itself with alcohol, resumed its work of destruction with the cooperation of the peasants, who had been summoned by the Ispravnik and the assistance of the soldier and policemen. It was on this occasion that those wild, savage scenes of murder, rapine, and plunder took place, 
the account of which, as published in the newspapers, is but the pale shadow of the real facts. The pogrom of Balta was called forth not by the mere inactivity, but by the direct activity of the local authorities. What these savage scenes were, we did not learn from the newspapers, which were forbidden by the censor to report them, but we know of them partly from unpublished sources and partly from the later court proceedings. Aside from the demolition of 1,250 houses and business places and the destruction and pillage of property and merchandise, according to a statement of the local rabbi, all well-to-do Jews were turned into beggars and more than 15,000 people were sent out into the wide world, a large number of people were killed and maimed, and many women were violated. Forty Jews were slain and dangerously wounded. 170 received slight wounds. Many Jews, and particularly Jewesses, became insane from the fright. There were more than 20 cases of rape. The 17-year-old daughter of a poor Polisher, Eda Malis by name, was attacked by a horde of bestial lads before the eyes of her brother. When the mother of the unfortunate girl ran into the street and called to her aid a policeman who was standing nearby, the latter followed the woman into the house and then, instead of helping her, dishonored her on the spot. The Finnish Horses invaded the homes of the Baruch Shlakovsky and began their bloody work by slaying the master of the house, whereupon his wife and daughter fled and hid themselves in a nearby orchard. Here, a Russian neighbor lured them into his house under the pretext of defending their honor against the rioters, but once in his house, he disgraced the daughter in the presence of her mother. In many cases, the soldiers of the local garrison assaulted and beat the Jews who showed themselves on the streets while the military operations of the mob were going on. In accordance with the customary pogrom ritual, the human fiends were left undisturbed for two days and only on the third day were troops summoned from a nearby city to put a stop to the atrocities. On the same day, the governor of Podolia arrived to make an investigation. It was soon learned that the local authorities, the police commissioner, the Ispravnik, the military commander, the burgomaster, and the president of the nobility had either directly or indirectly abetted the pogrom. Many rioters who had been arrested by the police were soon released because they threatened otherwise to point out to the higher authorities, the ring leaders from among the local officials and the representatives of Russian society. The Jews again were constantly terrorized by these scoundrels and cowed by the fear of massacres and complete annihilation in case they dared to expose their hangmen before the courts. The pogrom of Balta found but a feeble echo in the immediate neighborhood, in a few localities of the government of Podolia and Kherson. It seemed as if the energy of destruction and savagery had spent itself in the exploits at Balta. On the whole, the pogrom campaign conducted in the spring of 1882 
covered but an insignificant territory when compared with the pogrom enterprise of 1881, though surpassing it considerably in point of quality. The horrors of Balta were a substantial earnest of the Kishinev atrocities of 1903 and the October pogroms of 1905. 4. The Conference of Jewish Notables at St. Petersburg The horrors of Balta cast their shadow upon the Conference of Jewish Delegates, which met in St. Petersburg on April 8-11, 1882. The conference, which had been called by Baron Horace Ginzburg with the permission of Ignatiev, was made up of some 25 delegates from the provinces, among them Dr. Mandelstam of Kiev, Rabbi Isaac Elahan, Spector of Kovno, and 15 notables from the capital, including Baron Ginzburg himself, the railroad magnate Polakov, and Professor Bakst. The question of Jewish emigration was the central issue of the conference, although in connection with it, the general situation of Russian Jewry came up for discussion. There was a mixed element of tragedy and timidity in the deliberations of this miniature Congress, at which neither the voice of the masses nor that of the intelligentsia were given a full hearing. On the one hand, the conference listened to heart-rending speeches picturing the intolerable position of the Jews and one of the delegates, Schmeling from Mogilev, who had just delivered such a speech, was so overcome that he fainted and died in a few hours. On the other hand, the most influential delegates, particularly those from the capital, were looking about timorously fearing lest the government suspect them of a lack of patriotism. Others again looked upon emigration as an illicit form of protest, as sedition, and they clung to this conviction even when the conference had been told in the name of the Minister of the Interior that it was expected to consider the question of thinning out the Jewish population in the pale of settlement, in view of the fact that the Jews will not be admitted into the interior governments of Russia. At the second meeting of the conference, the rabbi of St. Petersburg, Dr. Drabkin, reported to the delegates about his last conversation with Ignatiev. In reply to the rabbi, who had stated that the Jews were waiting for an imperial word, ordering the suppression of the pogroms and were anticipating the removal of their legal disabilities. The minister had characterized these assertions as commonplaces and had added in an irritated tone. The Jews themselves were responsible for the pogroms. By joining the nihilists, they thereby deprived the government of the possibility of sheltering them against violence. The sophistry of the minister was refuted despite by his own confession that the Balta pogrom was due to a false rumor charging the Jews with having undermined the local Greek Orthodox Church. In other words, that the cause of the Balta pogrom was not to be traced to any tendencies within Jewry, but rather to the agitation of evil-minded Jew baiters. At the same session, the discussion of the emigration question was sidetracked by a new design of the slippery minister. The financier Samuel Polakov, 
who was close to Ignatiev, declared in a spirit of base flunkism that the labors of the conference would prove fruitless unless they were carried on in accordance with government instructions. On this occasion, he informed the conference that in a talk which he had with the minister, the latter had branded the endeavors to stimulate emigration as an incitement to sedition, on the ground that emigration does not exist for Russian citizens. Asked by the minister for suggestions as to the best means of relieving the congestion of Jews in the pale, Polakov replied, by settling them all over Russia. To this, the minister had retorted that he could not allow the settlement of Jews except in Central Asia and in the newly conquered oasis of Akalteke. In obedience to these ministerial utterances, the obscurious financier sharply opposed the plan of Jewish emigration to foreign lands and seriously recommended to the conference to consider the proposal made by Ignatiev. The minister's suggestion was bitterly attacked by Dr. Mandelstam, who saw in it a new attempt to make sport of the Jews. Even Professor Baxt, who objected to emigration on principle, declared that the proposed scheme of settling the Jews amounted in reality to a deportation to far-off places and was tantamount to an official classification of the Jews as criminals. From the project of deportation, which failed to meet with the sympathy of the conference, the delegates proceed to discuss the burning question of pogroms. It was proposed to send the deputation to the Tsar, appealing to him to put a stop to the legislative restrictions which were bound to inspire the Russian population with the belief that the Jews were outside the pale of the law. In the question of foreign emigration, the majority of the conference voted against the establishment of emigration committees on the ground that the latter might give the impression as if the Jews were desirous of leaving Russia. After a debate lasting four days, the following resolutions were adopted. First, to reject completely the thought of organizing emigration as being subversive of the dignity of the Russian body politic and of the historic rights of the Jews to their present fatherland. Second, to point to the necessity of abolishing the present discriminating legislation concerning the Jews, this abolition being the only means to regulate the relationship of the Jewish population to the original inhabitants. Third, to bring to the knowledge of the government the passive attitude of the authorities which had clearly manifested itself during the time of the disorders. Fourth, to petition the government to find means for compensating the Jewish population which had suffered from the pogroms as a result of inadequate police protection. At the same time, the conference took occasion to refute the old accusation which had again been brought up in the gubernatorial commissions that the Jews still retained their ancient autonomous kahal organization and that the latter was operating secretly and was fostering Jewish separatism to the detriment of the other elements of the population. 
The resolution of the conference on this score reads as follows. We, the undersigned, the representatives of various centers of Jewish settlement in Russia, rabbis, members of religious organizations and synagogue boards, consider it our sacred duty, calling to witness God omniscient, to declare publicly in the presence of the whole of Russia that there exists neither an open nor a secret Kahal administration among the Russian Jews that Jewish life is entirely foreign to any organization of this kind and to any of the attributes ascribed to such an organization by evil-minded persons. The signers of this solemn pronouncement were evidently unaware of the degrading renunciation of the national rights, which was implied in the declaration that not only had the Jews lost their former comprehensive communal organization, this was in accordance with the facts, but that was such an inner autonomous organization to exist, they would regard it as a criminal offense, subversive of the public order and punishable by the forfeiture of the civil rights. End of section 23.